Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 83rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. And just like the carbon plan order we received from the North Carolina Utilities Commission, we're dropping this episode late on a Friday afternoon. We didn't want to keep the listeners waiting any longer for some of the best insight and analysis you'll hear about the recent order we received from the commission. So there's never been a better time than the present to bring you the latest episode of the podcast. So normally, at this point of the show, we share a number of updates and announcements about what's going on in the industry, but we're going to go ahead and forego that to ensure we get right to the meat of today's episode, which of course, as I mentioned, is the carbon plan. However, I will mention that coming up in just about a week or so, maybe even less for those listening in a little bit later, NCSEA along with our partners at the Southern Environmental Law Center, Sierra Club, and the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy will be hosting a webinar on January 19th available for anyone to attend, focused on the carbon plan as well. So if you're looking for additional carbon plan content after today's episode, I'd encourage you to visit energync.org, go to our events page, and register for that free webinar. Okay, so as we've teed up in previous episodes, North Carolina has been in the midst of a nearly a years-long proceeding at the North Carolina Utilities Commission to come up with a plan designed to meet the legislative mandate of 70% emissions reductions for the electricity sector by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. The mandates were originally set in the language of House Bill 951 coming out of the North Carolina General Assembly towards the end of the 2021 legislative session. That bill delegated the responsibility of determining the path forward to the North Carolina Utilities Commission. From there, the commission opened a proceeding inviting the utilities and numerous other parties to submit their own plans for what that path may look like. And after months of hearing, deliberations, and modeling, the commission has finally issued an order, which is set to shape the electricity sector in North Carolina for years to come. So on today's episode, we're talking about what was in that order, how it differed from what many clean energy advocates and professionals lobbied for, and what the process towards implementation looks like moving forward. So without any further ado, let's introduce each of our esteemed guests. Clean energy. Clean energy. First up is Tyler Norris. Vice President of Development at Cypress Creek Renewables, a leading renewable developer and independent power producer. He served as a witness in the North Carolina Carbon Plan proceedings in his position as co-chair of the Clean Power Suppliers Association. He also serves on the board of the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund and Carolina's Clean Energy Business Association. His voice may sound familiar as he's previously been a guest on the podcast as well. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. And our second guest serves as Senior Regulatory Counsel, currently here at NCSEA. Taylor Jones works to advance clean energy policies at the North Carolina Utilities Commission and represented NCSEA amongst the coalition of organizations known as the Clean Interveners throughout the carbon plan proceedings. Taylor joined the NCSEA team back in 2021 after some time as an attorney on the West Coast in California. She's been an incredible advocate for clean energy interests and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the carbon plan proceedings. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Taylor onto the podcast. Taylor, welcome to the pod. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. 
Our third guest is a former colleague of mine at the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association and now serves as an attorney at Kilpatrick Townsend in Stockton. Ben Smith was previously Associate General Counsel at NCSEA and has over a decade of extensive litigation and regulatory experience. Ben brings that experience to the table to represent numerous clients within the clean energy space at Kilpatrick Townsend in Stockton. Ben also was a participant in the carbon plan proceedings representing various clean energy companies. We're excited to have Ben join us today to help share some insights on the offshore wind perspective of the recent order. Ben, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. All right, so to kick off the conversation, I'd love to start with one area of the carbon plan order we recently received that stood out to each of you. And we'll start with Taylor on this question. It's short in length, um, just under 140 pages. That's what stood out to me immediately. I was expecting a sort of a much lengthier order. Reading between the lines on that, I wonder if the commission was not writing to what they rightly assumed would be a much wider audience than the bar that regularly appears before them and sort of that standard set of clients. Of course, this is an important milestone in the state's energy transition, and it has implications for every citizen of the state. So we've seen really broad interest in the carbon plan since day one. I think the trade-off to the the length of the order and sort of maybe the level of specificity included in, on some of the topics is that interveners and their council spent months developing uh, generation resource models, critiquing Duke's carbon plan analysis. And much of that work, while it's part of the record for this proceeding, it's not discussed fully in the final order. Instead, the commission states that While it considered all the evidence in the record, it does not exhaustively summarize the complete record in the order, which I think many of us were expecting to see. Well, I think the length of the order is probably part of the reason why we're able to have this conversation here today as compared to some of the other orders we've received in the the past, things like IRPs or even, uh, you know, Duke's own modeling, which I think if I can remember correctly, was 800 and something pages long. (laughs) That's right. And so it's, it's, you know, a a nice change to be able to to digest and and fully read through the order in in just a few days. But, um, you know, to your point, there's, there's, I I think it leaves the door open for a lot. Um, So Tyler, what, what stands out uh, to you in, in the most recent order that we received? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Well, to start on a positive note, you know, from a process standpoint, um, I think we were a bit surprised that it dropped um, late on the day before New Year's Eve. We thought we might receive it a little earlier, and I do think it demonstrates the the level and the, the you know the extent of effort that went into this on the part of the commission. So, to start on a positive note, there. You know, from there, I think the thing that immediately stood out to us is how much the order um, does side with Duke on nearly every major issue in front of the commission and how the order does set aside evidence and analysis from leading national experts. Um, Certainly from our side, this stood out to us with respect to Brattle Group. Um, which the commission um, does not does not quote uh, at any point in the order. Um, so we can talk more about the nature of the proceeding and the order and sort of how it treated different parties, but that certainly stood out to us. And and Ben, what what stood out to uh, you and your role with Kilpatrick? Sure, yeah, and, and just to, as a quick uh, uh, disclosure, I, I represented uh, Avangrid Renewables uh, in the 
carbon plan proceeding. Um, but anything I say today during the podcast is my own views and none of my clients' views necessarily. Uh, so quick disclosure there. Um, surprised by, I'd, I'd say the most surprising thing, and, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but was the reaffirmation of the regulated monopoly planning legacy. What I saw in this order was a, was echoes of an IRP, an integrated resource plan order, um, which w- we've you know become accustomed to in North Carolina in, a, in an investor-owned utility utility state uh, paradigm, um, and sort of you know, giving a lot of deference to the planning on behalf of the utility rather than a scenario where the commission itself sort of takes a leadership role in developing a plan for generation in the state. And then similarly in that vein, the the sort of not only acceptance, but sort of requirement for multiple portfolios to be presented to the commission. Um, I thought it was a little surprising how the commission um, sort of reaffirmed its position, um, and this is sort of, I think, also legacy IRP um, um, position, that the the utility should have multiple portfolios that it presents to the commission to consider. Um, I, I don't know that it's a bad or a good thing, but I, I did think it was interesting because it does feel a little bit in opposite of, of the way that the statutory language reads. Speaking of IRP, we have a new acronym for our listeners to keep track of, which is now CPIRP in the commission's attempt to kind of blend the process of the, the carbon plan and the integrated resource planning process. We might talk a little bit more about that later on in the conversation. So let's take a step forward here. Uh, I know it's it's hard to tell, but based on what we know, does this order position us well to achieve the mandated emissions targets from House Bill 951? And as a reminder for our listeners, that's 70 percent by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. And we'll start again with Taylor on this question. Yeah, so maybe just a little bit of um, a refresh on the statute 951 that kicked this uh, whole carbon plan proceeding off. The statute outlines certain circumstances under which the 2030 interim 70% carbon reduction deadline may be extended. And so there was a question in this proceeding, what are those circumstances really? When are they triggered? At what time is it appropriate for the commission to exercise that discretion to extend that deadline? We did not see the commission really weigh in and say one way or the other, whether they think the interim 2030 deadline can be extended at this time. But there's clear language in the order that the commission expects Duke to continue to pursue compliance with 2030 and to continue to propose portfolios that would comply with that 2030 deadline in future carbon plan proceedings. Um, So the analysis that we conducted via Brattle, and I think it's supported by some other interveners as well, um, concludes that this commission's order approving Duke's um, near-term execution plan, particularly in terms of the the amount of solar and storage volume, uh, makes it extremely difficult to meet the state's carbon emissions reduction target by 2030. And to illustrate this, I think it's helpful to to look at Duke's own P1 portfolio. So for the benefit of your listeners, you know, Duke initially put forward four portfolios, P1 through P4. Their P1 portfolio was the, the only portfolio that met the target by 2030. And it did so by adding 5,400 megawatts of new solar to be online by the beginning of the year 2030. And so 
The commission's order approves 3,100 megawatts of new solar to be procured over the next three years. And so just basic math. So that's a gap of 2,300 megawatts that will need to be procured and installed after the next three years. And if we assume a standard period of four years from procurement to in-service of new resource, 2025 is the last procurement year that we have to get resources online by the beginning or even the middle of 2030. And so what that means is that if we only procure 3,100 megawatts of the next three years, we would have to procure 2,300 megawatts in 2025 and achieve an annual interconnection rate of 2,300 megawatts in 2029, again, to get that resource online by the beginning of 2030. But the challenge, Matt, is actually even more substantial than that, because Duke's 5,400 megawatt figure understates the amount of solar that they actually have online and operating in 2030 for the purposes of compliance. So again, that 5,400 number is what they have by the beginning of your 2030, but they actually have closer to 6,100 megawatts online by mid-2030. So what we're actually talking about here is a gap closer to around 3,000 megawatts that would have to be made up in the 2025 procurement. We can certainly consider the possibility of improving the interconnection rate such that that could be achieved, Uh, but no intervener to to my knowledge has proposed such a high interconnection rate. And of course, the commission, Duke, and public staff have expressed significant skepticism uh, about achieving an interconnection rate even as high as 1,800 megawatts a year. Uh, And so just to go one layer deeper on this, because I think it is really important and it's where one of the key next steps here, I think, after this order is so so Duke's response to this, and this came out in the proceeding, is Duke said, well, that's not quite the whole story because there's the possibility that we could procure more than 3,100 megawatts over the next three years via our proposed volume adjustment mechanism. And so the notion is that if the cost of solar falls below a certain threshold, they would procure more than 3,100 megawatts or the specific number that's designated in each procurement year. And so uh, this sort of begs the question of, you know, if your goal is to take all reasonable steps to achieve compliance by 2030, why not start with the, the volume that you that the modeling suggests is in fact necessary to achieve it. But even if you know we do go this direction and we say, okay, let's design an appropriate volume adjustment mechanism, there are significant problems with the current approach because it is based on an arbitrary cost threshold that is linked to the specific cost forecast that Duke happened to use in their, their forecast of solar costs. This is not the way sort of methodologically you would ideally approach this question, you would you would look at the, the tipping points or the cost thresholds at which you would stop procuring a specific resource and instead attempt to procure a different resource. And we know that that cost threshold is, is very high. I mean, it, it may be even as high as 90 to $100 a megawatt hour, depending on what alternative zero carbon resource may be available. And just, I'll just add one more data point on this, just for the interest of your listeners. The current 
solar reference cost that's being used for the purpose of the existing volume adjustment mechanism is now less than Duke's avoided cost rate. We had requested multiple times at the proceeding that Duke release their updated avoided cost rate. They declined to do so, but they did finally do so last month in December. And their updated 25-year avoided cost rate is actually now in the low $60 for megawatt hour, whereas the solar reference cost for purposes of the volume adjustment mechanism is actually in the 50s per megawatt hour. Um, so it just it speaks to the very arbitrary and flawed nature of the current volume adjustment mechanism and underscores the importance of getting a better and more appropriate volume adjustment mechanism going forward if we're going to have any reasonable possibility of meeting compliance by, by 2030. So I want to go back to one thing that you just mentioned. You, you mentioned some of the challenges that we've previously encountered with interconnection and how that could potentially be a holdup for deploying the, the solar numbers needed to hit those 2030 targets. The other piece of that is is transmission. And I know as part of the recent order, we, we received uh, some language from the Utilities Commission on transmission upgrades, specifically as it pertains to red zone target areas here in, in North Carolina. So with those those solar uh, procurement numbers that we're talking about, do we need to make those upgrades to transmission before we're even able to to interconnect those numbers? And is that going to be another holdup in, in, in terms of the timeline to be able to hit those 2030 targets? Yeah, well, great question. There's a lot to unpack there. So maybe we start by acknowledging what you alluded to, which is that um, the commission took the constructive step of approving most of Duke's proposed red zone upgrades. These are the, the transmission upgrades to existing transmission corridors uh, in predominantly the southeastern portion of North Carolina and the, the upper northeastern portion of South Carolina, which I think you know, the vast majority of interveners, Duke and other stakeholders agree um, that zone is is very favorable to solar development and will be necessary to, to meet um, the emissions reduction targets. So they, they took that constructive step. So those, those upgrades will now proceed. There are other dynamics that can be discussed around the, the sort of cost accounting treatment around that that are, that are challenging, which you can circle back to. But with respect to your, your question of whether, you know, the, these upgrades, what, you know, with the timeline they'll be completed on, whether they'll be Necessary. I mean, again, I think there's there's broad consensus that they are indeed necessary to to meet the emissions reduction target. It's certainly true that there are there's a meaningful amount of solar resource that is available to the system that would not require substantial network upgrades, and I think we're, we're going to see that demonstrated throughout the course of the current procurement and the the current interconnection study. But there's no doubt that uh, a meaningful portion will require some degree of network upgrades. And that's why it's so important that we identify those contingent upgrades as quickly as possible so that we can get them commenced as rapidly as possible, just given the time frame it will require. And of course, we can identify contingent upgrades more quickly the sooner that we procure resources. Uh, and that that's part of the problem too, by the way, with sort of under procuring over the near term is that um, we end up doing less identification of necessary contingent upgrades, and uh, and then we don't commence those upgrades quick enough. The one other thing, Matt, I'll just add, which is which is important, is that 
you know, there are an emerging set of tools and resources and technologies that can allow for the mitigation of required network upgrades to integrate new resources. And you've probably heard about, you know, grid enhancing technologies and dynamic line ratings and, you know, the use of energy storage as the transmission asset. And it's so important that this be part of a holistic approach to transmission planning, uh, because to the extent that we can avoid network upgrades, the, the quicker we're going to be able to get these low cost zero carbon resources onto the system. And so, you know, we're, we're looking forward to engaging in that more holistic transmission planning process going forward. And, and Ben, back to the to the original question. Do you believe, you know, based on your take of, of the order, that it positions us to uh, achieve the mandated emissions target reduction by 2030? You know, it's, it's an interesting question from my perspective, because I think the commission did two things. One was sort of a procedural maneuver, and the other was sort of substantive, which I, I think Tyler spoke to well, um, and I'll add a little bit. But the, the procedural point of it was that Duke had sort of implanted, assumed extensions of time into their different portfolios. And, and, and commission had, had sort of, you know, said that we don't need to make that decision yet. Well, they also said, oh, we need to have multiple portfolios and we need to figure out long lead resources. What are long lead resources? Those are things like offshore wind. And, and it was basically agreed upon that offshore wind would take eight years to develop. It doesn't take, you know, a mathematician to figure out the timing on that. So if you don't start now, you know, it's not, it's not going to get done in time. And so, you know, the commission setting itself up maybe to give an extension of time later, I, I can't be certain if, if, if offshore wind is part of it or if and one of the other long lead resources are included. I'll say, though, that I think the commission did a fairly good job of, of sort of pointing out the need to move quickly. And I think, as I said, Tyler, Tyler covered the, the solar and solar plus storage aspect of this really well. And I think that there is the, the sort of because of the maturity of that industry, the need is now and, and sort of moving forward with that is, is imperative. But because of some of the other um, sort of burgeoning industries that are more nascent in technology, and then also maybe not nascent in technology, but nascent in sort of use in the U.S. for, for offshore wind, you, you got to get to developing it. And so the commission said, we need to start developing these things. And, and with offshore wind in particular, they, they ordered a study. And, and I think that's a good first step. And But more importantly, they gave a pretty quick deadline on that study. And I think that's what's going to allow us to have a chance, a shot, and maybe meeting the 2030, but more likely probably a 2032, um, which the statute allows a little bit of an extension of time for if there, for instance, is a wind project that the utility is, is developing. So so uh, I, I guess it's a mixed bag in, in terms of whether or not we'll hit that 2030 goal. It was always going to be a substantial goal to hit no matter what. So um, that, that's where my position is. Ben, I want to dive in a little bit more on the uh, the study that that you mentioned within that order. Does it concern you that the the order directed the study to be conducted by Duke, who seemingly might have a, a vested interest in the results of that study, given that the, the unregulated side owns the rights to one of the leasing areas off the coast of North Carolina versus that study being conducted by some third party? Yeah, uh, it does. Um, now, I'll say this, it's it's mitigated a bit because a legal portion of this order talked about ownership, right? And one of the issues regarding ownership, the statute says that Duke has to own all the generation resources in the state to be that are selected in the carbon plan. 
from from offshore winds perspective, it's not located in the state. In fact, it's not located in any state. It's located in, in federal waters. And and so what does that mean? Well, that, that means that ownership, the, the commission's taken a position that even though these wind energy resources are going to be located outside of the state, they still need to be uh, owned by the utility to be selected as part of the carbon plan. And so I think the commission's position would likely be, hey, you know, we, we might we might be giving Duke a lot of deference to, to say who's going to be able to, um, to to judge this study, but ultimately Duke is going to have to own it either way. And so if they, if if we figure out that that Kitty or, you know that one of the wind lease areas is is a, a, a more preferable spot than the utilities, then the utility can purchase it. And you know if if it's a favorable um, economic outcome for the, in the in the view of the commission, and then the utility and then they can rate base it. So. I, I kind of see the commission's point of view on that. Now, if I had my druthers, I would, of course, take an independent uh, evaluator of this because I do think that it, it's better for all parties. It makes everyone kind of speak um, with less hesitancy and, 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 and more willingness to be open and, and honest about the, the, the you know what's going on. So, so I, I prefer a third party administrator, but it is what it is. We have a tight turnaround, so work with what we got. And and the commission did require Duke to, to do its best and, and to sort of show its work and how it was um, objective in this analysis. And we'll circle back around a little bit um, later on some of the, the, you know, the overarching sort of offshore wind components of, of this order and, and that study. Uh, but but in the interim, we so we've spent some time talking about solar and wind assets, but looking at the the other side here, on uh, fossil generation. The order authorizes some new natural gas assets and keeps some of the last coal facilities online in the state through 2035. I'm curious, how is it possible that we would be able to achieve a a 2030 target of 70% emissions reduction with the authorization of new natural gas facilities and keeping those coal facilities online longer than groups like NCSEA and others have advocated for? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Matt. And I, I kind of wanted to circle back to this on this question of the 2030 70% carbon reduction deadline. If we look at the near-term actions that the commission includes in this carbon plan, they're nearly identical to the set of near-term actions that Duke proposed, which were designed to support execution of Duke's four initial portfolios that they proposed in their you know, very first carbon plan filing. And only one of those portfolios meets the 2030 interim deadline. So I think it does remain to be seen whether the set of near-term actions we're looking at in this carbon plan set Duke on a pathway to 2030 compliance. But again, I'll just add, you know, I think it's clear from the language in this order that the commission sees that path in, in the daylight there to to achieve that target, even with, uh, you know, approving for planning purposes, something like pro- the proposed new gas capacity or um, a coal retirement schedule that lasts until the end of 2035. But it's a great question, and I think we're just going to have to... Uh, you know, spend some time in upcoming CPCN proceedings when new plant construction is is proposed and really just track how Duke is modeling, uh, you know, the lifespan assumptions for natural gas plants in future carbon plant iterations and looking for room for improvement on the coal retirement schedule and um, really just keep everyone's feet to the fire to, to meet 2030. For somebody that's that's you know not uh, an attorney and maybe not in the the weeds as much as 
as as y'all are at the at the commission, you know, my my mind first goes to when we talk about natural gas assets, do we run the risk of going through a similar cycle that we're going through right now with with coal facilities of having to retire those facilities earlier than their useful life because five, ten years down the road we realize that they weren't really setting us on the path to achieving carbon emission reductions. And then ratepayers being on the hook for for paying for the construction of new facilities or expansion of facilities, and then also being put on the hook for early retirement of those same facilities. It seems like potentially a cash grab from from the utilities. Is that is that not a concern you know shared by uh, interveners in the room as well? Great questions, Matt. And this is where things get particularly nuanced and, and interesting. So I'll start off by saying that you know when we began Rattle's modeling effort to look at um, lease cost pathways to achieve the the 70% interim, interim carbon reduction mandate, we asked them to take a fully independent and objective look at this question, asked them to assume conservative solar costs, right? not incorporate the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act, which also came pretty late in the process, and assume reasonable cost estimates for, for all resources that they were modeling. And what their model produced, and it's, it wasn't necessarily our preferred portfolio, uh, but again, in taking the most objective and independent approach possible, their portfolios for achieving interim compliance did include some natural gas capacity additions. And the reason primarily is because, you know, when we are retiring this volume of coal capacity, the existing models um, do like the addition of some degree of a more dispatchable um, unit to to replace that capacity. And so their model identified somewhere between two to three gigawatts of additional gas capacity. By the way, that is a dramatic reduction compared to what was being proposed as recently as the 2020 integrated resource plan proceeding, which was more on the order of nine gigawatts of proposed natural gas capacity addictions over the over the planning period of 15 years. So we've come way, way down from what was previously proposed. It's important to caveat that, you know, Brattle's modeling did not attempt to optimize for net zero by 2050. And so that becomes a big part of the question is, what are you assuming in terms of the book life, the project book life of, of the particular plants? And then, of course, are you providing for the possibility of green hydrogen long term? And it is worth noting that, you know, in Duke's supplemental modeling requested by the public staff, they did not assume green hydrogen was was viable. The model and and in part via this sort of supplementary battery CT swap methodology that they used did 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 select a comparable volume of gas. So it's not to suggest that that is by any means the last word on this. I think it's to suggest that reasonable analysis and observers can look at this and say, you know, when you're taking off this amount of coal offline, it may be reasonable to add some amount of replacement gas capacity, again, for those, in particular, for those winter morning peaks that we will need to meet now currently and in the future. And then the question becomes, how much is appropriate? Are we talking about a gigawatt, two gigawatts, as high as three gigawatts? And I think that that's a reasonable area for discussion. And then to your point about stranded asset 
asset risk. It's, it's certainly real in all of our modeling. You know, we should be assuming very um, reasonable project book lives that that don't go beyond the net zero um, timeline for for 2050. And we probably, for all intents and purposes, right now, uh, unless and until we have more definitive evidence that green hydrogen will be viable um, on the system and able to be utilized in these facilities and in existing pipelines, um, you know, we probably should not be assuming that that it will be available for those units long term. Yeah, I can add a little bit here. So Duke assumed that any new natural gas capacity that they brought online would have a 35-year operable life. And so obviously, if that plant is running sort of business as usual, that means carbon emissions past 2050 which is something that they had to address in their modeling. And so Tyler touched on this, they sort of convert their gas fleet to a a sort of green hydrogen or or hydrogen fuel supply. I think it's fair to say that the cost assumptions involved in modeling hydrogen fuel supply and whether that's going to technically be feasible, so both whether it's cost-effective and whether it's technically feasible to utilize hydrogen the way Duke's carbon plan does, both of those things are speculative at this point. Uh, of course, they're you know years out from needing to materialize. The commission noted the public staff uh, you know had some concerns about just the utilization of hydrogen as a fuel supply in general. So the commission noted in this order, sort of the public staff and other interveners concerns about the uncertainty of a hydrogen market materializing, but they still determined that at least at this stage, the use of a 35-year operable life for a gas plant and planning to use hydrogen as a selectable resource are reasonable assumptions but they stated that, you know, in future modeling that they see from the utilities, if they're going to use a lifespan longer than 20 years for a gas plant, they want to see the specific cost inputs and assumptions going into, you know, what are you, what are you going to do with the remaining years of life of this plant? Are you running it on hydrogen and what does that cost? Are you going to be relying on an offset market? Is there some sequestration technology that you're tracking or or planning to use? So I expect to see some more detail around this in future carbon plan proceedings. One additional follow-up to this question, Tyler, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, natural gas as, you know, a dispatchable resource to kind of help manage baseload and peak on the generation side. And, you know, I wonder is is that something that can be met with storage assets and solar plus storage uh, thinking about you know grid scale batteries over the next five to ten years that could potentially offset the need for uh, the construction of or expansion of natural gas facilities in the state yeah Matt great question and the answer is absolutely and you, and when you look at these winter morning peaks in particular, um, the the load shape is very amenable to a short duration lithium ion battery solution, and so just to contextualize, you know the current winter morning on peak period is defined within the rate structure as a three hour period between six a.m. to nine a.m. over a certain limited number of winter months. What we saw in the Christmas Eve um, early morning peak was was similar, um, and 
we actually put out some analysis sort of demonstrating that both a two hour lithium ion battery solution, a four hour solution and a six hour solution, all of those could have offered meaningful on-peak capacity to the system to mitigate that peak and to mitigate the need for um, additional uh, fossil capacity um, to be added to the system. So there's no doubt that that's going to be an, a really important part of the solution. The 1,600 megawatts of battery additions that the commission just approved in the carbon plan order will, will be very helpful on that front. There's likely a lot more we can do on top of that. And of course, many many of the um, intervener models suggested even more battery capacity additions could be a least cost solution to achieve the, the emissions reduction target. So that'll be important. It's, it's of course the case too, and, and Duke helpfully noted this in their in their discussion this week around the, the blackouts that, you know, pumped hydro played a very significant role in mitigating the blackouts on Christmas Eve. And and then on that day as well, you know, they were able to utilize the, the very robust solar production on that day to recharge their pumped hydro in preparation for a potential similar event that might occur, you know, on the subsequent day. And so, you know, pumped hydro is, is another important solution here. And of course, you know, as, as longer duration storage solutions continue to emerge, those will be valuable as well. So you mentioned intervener modeling. And I know a couple of us have, have talked about what our respective organizations have or were advocating for in the carbon plan proceeding. So I, I want to talk about, you know, how this recent order we received differed from what each of the organizations or businesses that the groups here represent, what that difference looked like between the order we received and what we were advocating for. So I want to start with Ben on this question. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting question because... One, the, the the order and what came out of it was, you know, significantly different than what any of the interveners presented. I, I have the um, the unique background of of knowing what what's happened with the, the modeling in the past and the IRPs and and how um, interveners, particularly clean energy advocates, have tried to model and sort of give information to the utility and and what you know what what I think is my um, Possibly my biggest negative takeaway from this order is that the commission didn't seem to give, in my in my estimation, as someone who didn't provide modeling to the commission for this, for my client, I, I didn't think they gave enough sort of weight to the different proposals made by the, the different intervener parties. I, I thought that they relied too much on the utility and the public staff's modeling, and they sort of, you know, gave a courtesy wave to the other um, groups that, that provided modeling. And, and I just don't know that that's what the intent of the statute was when it when it sort of said that you could provide your own, I think the language is provide your own carbon plan or, or different scenarios or something to that effect. But so that that would be my big takeaway is that uh, this this commission didn't didn't really put a ton of weight into modeling. Now maybe in the future, you know, once we can figure out a way as an intervener class to to sort of get the modeling on the same foot, because that was a big, my understanding, a big uh, issue is that the the Duke model we weren't you know the interveners weren't getting the same uh, outcomes despite trying to mimic it. And so, you know, it was sort of from the beginning, hey, like, how do we know we're on the same playing field here? Um, and, and that kind of required some uncovering of, of 
different inputs that, that were, were a little bit mysterious from the get-go and, and it caused time and effort and energy that, that should have been used in, in sort of coming up with solutions rather than trying to make sure everyone was arguing on, on the same playing field. So I'll stop there, but just say that, you know, again, I, I wish the commission gave more deference to the interveners. And seemingly that's one issue that this most recent order at least makes an attempt to address. My understanding is that with the CPIRP filing that Duke must make before September of this year, they're they're also required to provide their, their inputs and outputs uh, regarding their modeling. So it's not so much of a black box uh, with, with the modeling that we received last year uh, so that interveners and others will hopefully be closer to being on the, the same playing field. Taylor, how, uh, overall, how did uh, this order differ from, you know, maybe what NCSCA and the, the Queen interveners advocated for? Sure. I think I can talk a little bit about the specifics around that, but I want to touch on something that Ben raised and what you just mentioned, Matt. Uh, you know, we did get sort of all the modeling data inputs and assumptions out of the utility, but this is the first proceeding, I want to say, in um, NCUC history where the interveners and the utility are operating the same software, you know, really trying to be on equal footing, modeling the system at the same time. And so it's not surprising that there were some bumps in the road. And, uh, you know, with the exception of maybe the experts who are doing the modeling themselves, for a number of the parties, this was the first time they attempted anything that looked like quote, collaborative modeling. And so I'm hopeful that we can see some improvements on that front uh, moving forward. You know, I mentioned the near-term actions that we see be approved in this carbon plan are nearly identical to what Duke proposed in its carbon plan. I'll point out though, we, NCSEA, along with um, a number of our partners going by the, the name Clean Interveners, we argued that Duke should be able to achieve a 1.5% reduction in total retail load through energy efficiency programming. And we didn't see the commission go so far as to adopt that standard, but they did direct the utility to have as an aspirational goal a 1.5% reduction in eligible load. So that's slightly different from total retail load. There's some customer load that they can Uh, net out of the denominator on that equation sort of before they crunch those numbers. But we're going to see Duke model a scenario in its next uh, carbon plan that uses a 1.5% reduction in eligible retail sales, which I think is an improvement in the process. And it will be interesting to see the results of that. Harping back to the, the Brattle modeling, um, you know, our recommendations were substantially premised on that modeling. And what Brattle identified as um, you know, least cost path to compliance, assuming a, a reasonable cap on solar interconnections, was to add 7,500 megawatts of utility scale solar to the system by mid-2030. And as a step in that direction to to proceed with procuring over the next three years as part of the near-term execution plan, um, 4,800 megawatts of that so that we, we could position ourselves to, to maintain the possibility of meeting compliance by 2030. Um, so as noted, you know the commission approved Duke's proposed 3,100 megawatts. So that's approximately 65% of that 4,800. 
Um, so it's, you know, it's an incremental step in the right direction. Um, we, we believe it is insufficient, again, just based on the evidentiary record and the modeling, um, and hope that uh, via an improved volume adjustment mechanism that more can be done via the 23 and the 24 procurement to position ourselves to hopefully achieve compliance in a lease cop fashion by 2030 or even create the possibility of doing so by by 2032. The other thing that I think is is challenging is, um, you know, we I think every every intervener uh, that weighed in on the topic recognized that there is a maximum ach- achievable interconnection rate, uh, and I think generally agreed that 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 figure is cannot be known in advance. And certainly, from our perspective, we there's, we cannot know what the maximum achievable rate is unless we make an ambitious attempt and see how far we can get, and that by procuring more early, we could pursue more opportunities to test those limits and to identify opportunities to enhance the utility's capacity to achieve that higher rate. And um, one way we recommended potentially looking at those opportunities to enhance the interconnection rate would be creating a technical advisory committee of independent experts um, to look at Duke's interconnection practices and to to see if um, there are any possible improvements. Commission did decline to create a technical advisory committee as part of this order, but we're hopeful that there will be more opportunities to look at this um, because I think the evidentiary record is pretty overwhelming and there are very few parties that disputed that if we are able to achieve a higher interconnection rate, there are substantial cost savings that can be accrued for ratepayers as a result. I'll just add one more thing, Matt, which is, you know, I think some of the the brighter spots here are around proactive transmission planning. And so as noted, you know, the commission did approve most of the red zone upgrades, which we and, and Duke had recommended. They did strongly encourage making changes to transmission planning to pursue a more proactive approach to make improvements to the North Carolina Transmission Planning Collaborative and to make a more open and transparent process in collaboration with stakeholders to achieve that. So we think that those are positive steps, more to be done. Um, It is a little bit sort of open-ended at this point, but I think it creates the possibility of a much more constructive transmission planning process going forward. So Ben, we we talked a little bit previously about the offshore wind study that was directed under this order. Can you just uh, expand upon that a little bit and and tell us a little bit more about the offshore wind components uh, in the order overall? Does it explicitly direct the utilities to procure offshore wind as part of the future generation mix? No, it doesn't. It it says that the uh, utilities need to, and and this is an important point. Um, because this is a planning document. This does not um, approve cost recovery. And that, that means that the commission can you know, say all day, hey, we, we approve this for the planning purpose of, of you know, going down the road to evaluate whether it's a good idea. But then at some point, the utility has to come to the commission and request cost recovery, and it has to be deemed prudent. And, and at that point, then they can get cost recovery. And so there, there, is, there is a little bit of a difference between planning and, and sort of executing. And, and so this, this plan, this, um, you know, Duke Energy had asked for effectively, I think it was $350 million or so, something around there, to develop an offshore wind territory. And so they had sought to u- utilize the, the carbon plan docket as a, as a means to sort of get approval from the commission for that kind of investment. And the commission said, no, we're not going to do that. 
Instead, why don't you go to, um, you know, per, per uh, intervener suggestion and, and move forward with a study of the three offshore wind lease areas that are off the coast of North Carolina, compare them and then present it to the commission and we'll figure out what's the most prudent cost sort of uh, uh, plan. And, and if at that point, what, what they look at makes the most sense for the state and the ratepayers in the state to pay for. If, if it's cost effective, then we'll move forward with developing one of those three wind lease areas. And that might, and that would likely include, if it isn't the one owned by the Duke subsidiary, a sale of one of the wind lease areas. And then the Duke subsidiary ownership of, of, of one would, would require a, a transition of that uh, property from, from the wind lease area from the subsidiary to Duke. So, um, so no, they, they haven't they, they haven't approved anything, um, and they have now um, an outline of what's going to happen in the future. And then once we have the study, then we will be able to decide. The commission will have more information as to sort of you know hint at whether or not they would grant cost recovery. But do you know the utility would still have to reco- request cost recovery down the road, um, likely in a rate case, depending on how you know they do things. Um, but likely in a rate case for for whatever that uh, generation. Uh, new generations, such as an offshore wind farm, would look like. So, so yeah, you know, it's it's, and I'll say this is my last point. The um the the another big takeaway from this order is the tension that the commission has here in developing a plan as they're required to by the statute, but also living in an investor-owned utility state where where ultimately. You know, the, the commission can't develop a plan and then, for instance, you know, deny cost recovery to the utility down the road for something that they've pushed forward. But everyone sort of agreed or, or most parties agreed that there needs to be separate cost recovery um, and, and certification proceedings. So if you want to build a new natural gas plant, you got to come in and request for a, a certificate saying that it's that it is necessary and convenient for the public. And then and if you want to get cost recovery, then you need to prove that the investments you made in it were, were prudent. And, and so it. The, the whole point of this order and what the big takeaway and, and sort of the reinforcement of this investor-owned utility sort of paradigm is that, you know, we're in a state where we, we have this new carbon plan statute and it's and it's great in the sense that it gives us a, a shining light of where we need to go. 70% reduction, 100%, you know, to carbon neutrality. But it's still a tension with some of the sort of legacy regulated monopoly requirements under law. So it's going to be interesting going forward. And I think the commission did, you know, the best that they could on, on sort of, you know, dealing with that tension. But but we'll see how it goes forward. And, and, and hopefully we're able to, to capture our, our 2030 goal. So now that we've talked about how the, the order has differed from what each organization uh, had advocated for. We've we've dove into various facets of the order. Let's talk about what's next. I know the order also didn't uh, waste any time talking about where we where we go next. And I know our collective organizations are already ramping up and preparing for the the capacity and resources it's going to take to to jump into the, the next version or iteration of the carbon plan. What is that? What does that process look like? And I'll start with Taylor on this one. Sure. So you touched on this acronym earlier, Matt, the CPIRP, the Carbon Plan Integrated Resource Plan, I suppose is, is what that's meant to stand for. So, you know, there are other utilities that have an IRP requirement, but Duke being subject to the carbon plan is going to need a new set of rules by which it is, you know, regularly updating the commission, continuing to develop the carbon plan and sort of tracking towards the interim and ultimate 2050 deadline. So 
The commission asked the utility to engage with the public staff and other stakeholders to draft a new proposed rule that would govern that CPIRP process for Duke. Although, interestingly, they didn't sort of leave the dates up to uh, the discretion of the utility. Uh, So we know already that Duke is going to file its next iteration of the carbon plan on September 1st, 2023. And the commission has already scheduled the deadline for the public staff or any other intervener to file you know, whether it's a critique of Duke's plan or their own preferred portfolios and modeling that will happen 180 days after we see Duke's carbon plan update. And Tyler, diving into the specifics of of solar procurement from this order, what does that look like moving forward? Are we going to see a similar process to what played out with the CPRE previously here in North Carolina? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we expect... Uh, it'll be relatively similar to the 2022 solar procurement that we're currently in the middle of. Um, I think there's still some aspects of the procurement that need to be optimized just because it, it was a very sort of fast and dirty effort, so to speak, to get that procurement in place after the passage of 951. Um, there just wasn't a lot of time to figure everything out. So more to do there, um, you know, for the first time ever, we'll be sort of putting together a, a better solar plus storage PPA sort of form contract. So that's uh, that's an area of significant effort for the industry in Duke, um, and Duke and the commission over the over the coming months. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, getting if we are going to go with this approach of a volume adjustment mechanism, really digging down further into the, the methodology I think will be will be valuable and again if we can if we can get a better approach in place I think it, it might actually improve the possibility that we still could achieve compliance by 2030 via the 2023 and the 2024 procurement so I think that'll be a, a really important area of focus um, over the coming year um, you know the other piece here which I think is equal perhaps equally important is going to be this 2023 update that reflect the Inflation Reduction Act incentives. And as part of this, you know, it's so important that we get a full and accurate cost accounting of, so if we are going to assume a a fixed hard cap on our most affordable and readily available zero carbon resource, at minimum, we need to understand what are the cost savings that we're foregoing especially with the IRA layered in as a result of this hard fixed cap. And then beyond that, understanding what is the potential marginal cost of achieving a higher interconnection rate? Because one of the problems, Matt, with this notion of a hard fixed limit is that it assumes that there is no price that you could pay to achieve a higher rate of interconnection. We know that's not true, uh, but there's been no analysis to look at what is a reasonable assumption about, again, that marginal rate of interconnection. And I think to do a full and accurate cost accounting of the Inflation Reduction Act in 2023, we need to have a lot more analysis on that front. So we're looking forward to engaging on that. And then the last one I'll mention, which is um, related to solar procurement, but goes beyond, is is the transmission planning process. There's going to be a big effort this year to to enhance the North Carolina Transmission Planning Collaborative, 
to identify what the next set of upgrades will be beyond the red zone upgrades necessary to achieve these emission reduction targets. And we're looking forward to engaging on that. And I think you mentioned part of the the importance of the, the next update to the carbon plan, factoring in numbers from the Inflation Reduction Act. There's been so many different things that have occurred over the past year that have affected the energy industry from inflation, supply chain, fuel costs associated with global politics, the IRA. And so all of those things will hopefully be factored into the next iteration of this carbon plan, uh, emphasizing the importance of continuing the conversation versus, quote unquote, snapping the chalk line and leaving it there. But speaking of leaving it there, I'm going to end the conversation here because I know we've covered a whole lot associated with the carbon plan. But thank you again to all three of you for joining us today and sharing some of your insights about what was included in the most recent carbon plan order. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope to have each of you back on as we talk more about what the implementation process looks like moving forward. Thank you all so much for joining us today on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt. Anytime. And my key takeaway from today's episode is that the North Carolina Utilities Commission sided heavily with the utilities on their most recent order, authorizing additional natural gas facilities, delaying the retirement of existing coal facilities, and limiting the deployment of renewable resources like wind, solar, and storage. However, I don't feel totally deflated after this order, as we did see some wins like some necessary movement forward on transmission, and at the bare minimum, more efforts in the energy efficiency realm and of course, a study on offshore wind. Even more so, as we heard from Taylor, the process is already in motion to draft up the next iteration of the 2024 carbon plan, with proposals due from the utilities starting in September of this year. So groups like you heard from on today's episode will have another bite at the apple when it comes to advocating for more clean energy resources on the grid here in North Carolina. These updates will also be incredibly important to factor in considerations like the IRA, inflation, and of course, the most recent rolling blackouts we experienced here in the Southeast, emphasizing the need for more resiliency and reliability throughout Duke's operating territories, which, by the way, stay tuned as we have an episode coming up shortly on that very topic. And okay, the last ask before we wrap up January. If you've been listening to this podcast for some time and enjoy what you hear, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. Your contributions and those of your clean energy neighbors help to make programming like this possible. Now, through the end of January, we're conducting a campaign that's dependent on your support to help ensure we're as prepared as possible to be able to handle what is shaping up to be a busy, busy 2023. Your support is instrumental to a strong clean energy showing at the North Carolina Utilities Commission and North Carolina General Assembly. Make sure to visit energync.org for more information on our annual giving campaign and to find out how you can help support today. All right, that's it. See y'all later.